You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Coming up on the Mark Devine Show. Right now, as we're talking about AI and machine learning and all the changes that we're seeing within the market, all the new medications and the technologies, there's a, there are a lot of things that are changing. It's really falling back on the stories of what we have done in the past, how we have overcome, how we have lived our mission and values and, and embodied them that really help us to like kind of level set then how we move forward. Hi, I'm Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, resilient, and compassionate leaders. I talk to folks from all walks of life, meditation monks, stoic philosophers, motivational scientists, and leadership experts and authors, such as our guest today, Dr. Richard Winters. Richard's the author of You're the Leader, Now What? Leadership Lessons from the Mayo Clinic. He's a practicing emergency physician and executive coach at Mayo and director of leadership for their care network. Dr. Wood is a graduate of Mayo's Alex School of Medicine, and he's board certified and does his emergency medicine there at Mayo. He's from uh, board certified from the University of California, San Francisco. He graduated from the University of Texas at Dallas Executive and Professional Coaching Program and uh, completed healthcare management executive MBA also from the University of Texas. Prior to his work at Mayo, Dr. Winner served as managing partner of a Democratic physician group, then the chair of emergency medicine and president of 800 physician medical staff and CEO founder of his own managed care startup. Richard, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So you're at the Mayo Clinic. You've been there for a number of years and you're running leadership programs there. So I'm really excited to talk about that. Before we kind of dig into your view on leadership and leadership development, can you give us a sense for kind of what got you on the path that led to your, you know, the formative career? Like what were your early influences? What was it that kind of got you interested in, in medicine and then leadership? You know, what, what did all that look like? Yeah. I mean, so I was born, and at that point, I knew I was going to be running leadership development pro- programs at Mayo Clinic, right? <laughs> You were born at a very young age. Yeah. Right, so was I. That's awesome. You know, it all happens uh, just like life does uh, by chance. And so, honestly, I was a really poor high school student, uh, C-minus sort of average, and uh, did not do well in biology. Uh-oh. And then uh, got my act together in, in college, and then decided I wanted to be a physician, and then went to Mayo Medical School. Had a great time there and learned a lot. Then went to emergency medicine residency. And after that, started practicing. And so as I'm starting practicing and taking care of patients one by one, you start to see that there's some things that might be done better or that you have ideas for how things could be better. And to do that, then you're, you kind of step into these leadership roles. And so as you step into leadership roles, how do you do that? Like, how do you even, <laughs> like, I, I can, as I'm seeing patients, I can write an order. But as I'm in meetings with people, it doesn't seem like the orders I'm writing are coming across as I wanted to. <laughs> and so, so I ended up becoming chair of the department, ended up becoming president of medical staff, and went and got an MBA. 
And as MBA, you know, learned this whole new language because I realized that the doctors were speaking a different language from the administrators. And in there, there was a course on coaching. And I always thought about coaching as being like, I don't know, talking about feelings and things like that. And uh, I didn't really have a great understanding of it. But what I found was in the coaching training was a way of thinking about how I could be effective, how I was thinking. And then really helpful was to be able to sit with others and to be able to help them figure out how they can be most effective. And so really from that point then on, leadership opportunities you know, raised. And then uh, I was also uh, coaching more healthcare leaders around the United States and then somehow got to Mayo and ended up to getting to this point where we're talking right now. That's fascinating. We, we have a coaching program uh, in my company and we consider it to be a master skill for leaders. And I think you, know, you kind of stumbled upon that, right? I understand the University of Texas, where you went and got your MBA, they have an exceptional coaching program. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned there? Because I think that's a good place for us to start kind of talking about leadership and leadership development, because coaching is so important. Yeah. And, and so one of the things for me as I was, because I was practicing at the time, I wasn't a college student. So this was uh, you know, mid-career right. and looking for ways of applying exactly what I was learning. The University of Texas Dallas has, I believe, the oldest graduate training in executive coaching. Is that right? And so it was great. So I was, for the MBA program, it was exclusively physicians. But then when I went into the, the coaching program after that, it was people from all sorts of industries. And it was one of these settings where I'd go and I'd train, I, you know, probably six hours a week after shifts and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it was all done online. And so from a coaching perspective, you start coaching each other, you start coaching colleagues, you start le learning what works, you start hearing from others, you know, that's not really the right approach and adjusting your approach. So it was a, a very, uh, very helpful situation. Was there a particular model that they taught for coaching? I mean, a framework? I mean, can you describe kind of what, what a framework would look like for someone if they're like, okay, I'm a leader and I need to learn how to coach? Yeah. So as you become a coach, there's lots of models that you're floating in and out of. I think the easy model for most people to understand is the grow model. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the stereotypical coaching thing. And the idea is that as you're talking to someone, the G is goals. So you want to mm -hmm. understand what their goal is. What are you trying to get to? Right. And then R is basically the reality of what they're experiencing. So what's going on right now? Discuss with right. how you're experiencing things. What are the things that you're doing that are working and not working? And then O is options. So now given all that, how might you move forward? What are some things you might do? Right. And then way is actually the way forward that you're going to choose into action. So as you think about a coaching engagement, you're trying to understand first of all the goal. You don't want to jump to way forward before you really understand what's going on in their sense of like the reality. Right. So it's, it offers this really nice kind of successive way of going through just, just thinking. Right. I love that. It gives you a model to think about your thinking. I, I actually went through training in the GROW model many, many years ago, and it, it was designed by a famous tennis coach. I don't know if he was the author of Inside Tennis or I forget his name now, but that's where that came from. Yeah, it's been around for a while. Yeah. And I think on top of that, then the nice thing about that program is Robert Hicks was the, the individual who found it. He had this idea that you're either supporting like action or thinking, right. or you're actually challenging action or thinking. And so it's nice to think about that as you're talking to someone, am I supporting what they're thinking, or maybe I'm challenging them and challenging them in a way that's actually helping them to, to think about things in a broader perspective. And then the same thing as they move towards action, how can you support it and how can you challenge it? So you can start to see these free frameworks kind of coming together as you're thinking about options. You might support and you might challenge yeah. the options. You might support and challenge 
their sense of uh, what's going on in their situation. I like that. I've always looked at the coach's role as really kind of holding a mirror up to the client to help them kind of see the truth maybe a little bit more clearly. Yep. You know, devoid of their biases or fears or, you know, whatever's holding them back from understanding, but also to provide some perspective or help them find that perspective. So that's really cool. So then you brought these skills back as a leader into Mayo. Yeah. How did it evolve to where you were basically doing this as a full-time thing within the Mayo you know, family of businesses? Yeah. So it's interesting. So it's not full-time. So as a physician, I'm still practicing. I'm still oh, in the department taking care okay. of patients. Yeah. Right on. And so that. that's, that's actually one of the special things about Mayo is for the majority of the leadership there, even at very high levels, they're still practicing. So they have kind of their skin in the game. Right. Yeah. So prior to coming to Mayo, I was already coaching individuals uh, in healthcare organizations. And it was one of these, like, how do I get back to Mayo? Because I had gone to medical school here. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation with one of my old MBA coaches. And he said, hey, do you know the chief HR officer over at Mayo? And I said, no. And he said, let me introduce you to her. And so that's what got me back into the door at Mayo. When I came here then, so I'm seeing patients. And it's, you know, one of these situations I think probably many people find themselves in is I am a fish in a big pond. Yeah. Um, or at Mayo, we like to think of like, I'm a one star in a constellation of stars. Mm -hmm. And so as I got here, it's seeing patients on the one hand, but then on the other hand, taking on some coaching engagements, speaking a little bit more, having people get to know you, and then all of a sudden being able to develop programs and then writing books and, and doing things like that. So mm -hmm. it was a very successive sort of step-by-step -step thing. Within Mayo as an organization, is coaching uh, mandatory or, or is it like, hey, someone comes to you and says, I heard about your work, you know, I could use a little help? So I think as we think about coaching, a lot of times people think about coaching from a corrective perspective. Someone's doing something wrong. Oh, no, you need, <laughs> you need to go see a right, coach. Right. And that is one form of coaching. But that's not the form of coaching that I think of in terms of the way most things are, and especially at Mayo. And so all the senior leaders are offered coaching. And then there are anyone who's a department chair or a leader administratively is also offered coaches. And then for people who are below, like people who are not leading lots of people who do not have a lot of direct reports. And so an individual surgeon who may not be a leader, they have an opportunity to have professional coaching. So different from mm -hmm. executive coaching, professional coaching. Mm -hmm. We have some funds that are set aside that you can put towards education or coaching or reading stuff. And, and people will use that for that. That's interesting. Let me just kind of clarify. So executive coaching is for an executive and a professional coach is for a non-executive professional, but the models or the actual process is not going to be really different, right? It's just the, the size of the problems maybe. Yeah, very much. And, I, and obviously they blur because executives have professional you know, problems or, or right, challenges right. they want to solve and vice versa. I think of executive myself as being those who really have a significant number of direct reports right. and are oftentimes dealing with boards or at that senior level. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to talk about your book, You're the Leader, Now What? Great title. I'm sure there's a lot of people who have actually felt that, like, okay, now what? <laughs> I've just been put, just handed this massive responsibility. You know, there's so much about leadership that is taken for granted that is really nuanced, right? Obviously, context, situation, perspectives, dealing with the different levels of development of all your team who largely lack awareness of those different levels of development. So development in psychology comes in, social psychology, organizational structure, organizational psychology. There's so much involved in this field of leadership. So what kind of personal frame of reference do you have beyond the coaching frame of reference, which we want to talk about more, but what's your leadership 
frame or style or, you know, what's the didactic around, around what you consider to be leadership? I think the key thing, particularly in healthcare, and I think really as I've coached individuals outside the industry, is that we all get into leadership positions because we're really good at what we do and people are looking to us to kind of step forward. As we're doing the things that we do, we're experts and people come to us and they seek answers and we give answers and we move on from there. But once we become leaders, then it's no longer about what do you think you make the decision it's often more towards like now you're facilitating, which I actually think about is like coaching. Right. And so we're facilitating groups of individuals. How do we all come together, all of us with different perspectives to make decisions as quickly as possible in a way that allows us to see through each other's blind spots and what's going on outside? Or we're coaching as leaders. And whether, if I'm meeting one-to-one with a colleague and trying to help them kind of make sense of the world, or even myself as a leader trying to make sense of what's going on there. I think the coaching framework, that facilitative framework, it's not like an elective of leadership now. This is the requirement for leadership. Yeah. And so the writing the book is like, you're the leader now what is oftentimes what happens is as I'm coaching someone, they get themselves into a situation or they find themselves in, this, in the midst of a challenge where their friends, their colleagues are disagreeing. There's a lot of tensions, motions are running high. And then they're looking to the leader to figure out like what to do. Right. And the leader's like, geez, I, you know, how do I take care of this? And so the intent, actually, as I was writing the book, was there's some basic things about just how to approach these really challenging situations that if the leaders could know this, then I could really start to coach them about how they're making sense of the world as opposed to how to approach making sense of the world. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. Amongst the leadership theories, one of the most relevant and what people would self-identify with is transformational leadership. And I think coaching model The idea of coaching and mentoring and evolving, uh, transforming the individuals that you're in relationship with is really almost a subset of that, but it it goes beyond that. You have to focus on organizational systems, you know, that often might block or hinder or not be, you know, optimized, right? Well, the first principle in your book is to question best practice, right? Because what's best practice for one period of time might not be for the next. Like, for instance, in this post-pandemic world, there's a lot of new best practices that need to be evolved, right? And so if people or if the leaders are waiting to go back to the old normal, then they're, they're asking the wrong questions, right? How do you coach people to question best practices and be open to something new emerging? Yeah, there was a quote, I believe David Snowden, who wrote an, a great HBR article. He's, he does a lot of stuff. But the quote that I remember from him is that best practices are by definition past practices. <laughs> And it, it just like crystallizes things. Cause so there are things, and I can think about in medicine, you know, there was a time when we used to use leeches and we used to do bloodletting. And those, that was best practice at the time. And I can just imagine the meetings <laughs> with, you know, people like, oh, do you, what are, you, are you saying we don't let the blood to help people get better? Right. That's ridiculous. <laughs> or really wash hands. And, you know, those sorts of things right. are best practices that, no, nah, it doesn't fit so much. And so we're in this really evolving world where things are really complex. And, the things we don't know, we don't know. And so how do we make sure that what we're doing today even still fits? You oftentimes will have people in meetings where using Mayo Clinic as an example, we have a lot of tradition. Um, and that's part of what's really strengthens the organization is our mission and our values and this tradition of where we come from. And within that, there can be a danger of individuals holding on to tradition. But on the other hand, to succeed, you have to innovate and you have to break apart things and see things in new ways. And perhaps approach patients in different ways. Right. And so you often get, get this tension of the innovators in the room and the traditionalists in the room figuring out how to, how to make things work. And it's really, okay, 
is does this best practice still hold? And so let's go through this process of trying to figure that out. Yeah. Do you have a specific methodology or like trick to help people break free of some of those best practice patterns and to think about something new or to? Yeah, I love, and I love how we started out talking about frameworks because, uh, and I'm going to go back to David Snowden. He wrote an HBR article, I believe it was in 2008, about the Kinevin framework, and it's spelled C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. Mm-hmm. And he's still very active. And what he talks about is just, what kind of problem are we facing? What kind of problem is this? And so it's important for us as a group to understand just kind of what kind of problem is. And so there, it's clear to me that the way I should sit down on this chair is bottom first. And for everyone in the room, they would agree with that, right? <laughs> a patient with a trauma comes in and their blood pressure is low and they've been bleeding. It's, there are things like we just all know in the room what to do. It's common sense. It's clear. Right. Those are things that don't require a lot of discussion. But that's the area of best practices. And then there are things that are complicated. And so as an emergency physician, as a patient comes in and they're having a heart attack, I'll call a cardiologist because mm-hmm. they have expertise. And now, now this next step of what to do with it, I'm not going to call an orthopedic surgeon. And so this, in this place of complication, we require experts. And we just ask experts what to do. And the experts kind of assess the situation, the data that's out there. They may not always agree, but they're making decisions about data that's known and possibilities of what's going to occur that are known. Right. This is the easy side. That's what right. tends to happen, though, in leadership is we're on this other side, uh, which is things that we don't know, uh, things that are complex or chaos. And so in this place of complexity, we're sitting in the room. And so, you know, COVID comes along. There's a lot of things we don't know. And actually, we don't even know what we don't know. And we don't know, like, if we were all sitting in the room, like, what's going to happen? Like, five of us, we wouldn't even agree upon the possible outcomes. Right. And then there's chaos, which is complexity on top of like squeezed time. Like we have to make decisions right now, in which case you can't get a bunch of people together. You just have to have a leader who's going to step up and make decisions. Right. The thing about best practices, we can be holding on to best practices, like, for example, pre-COVID best practices, which now six months into the pandemic, they no longer hold. And now we're in this place of chaos because we've been complacent. And so- How do we all know kind of which phase we're in and then how do we apply the best approach to that? Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. And dealing with complexity is, like you said, there's, it's orders of magnitude harder than dealing with complication or the simple challenges. I mean, this is something that this, you know, I come from the Navy SEAL background. I was a SEAL commander. Yeah. And um, we train for VUCA, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, right. ambiguity. We get very good. And, and we also, there are certain um, strategy and tactics, but it's mostly mindset, right? And, and it's the mindset of getting radically accepting of everything changing all the time. And so that any type of SOP or standard operating procedure, which you would call a best practice that you develop in by definition has to be flexible and also evolving. And so that takes a, a, a certain type of mindset to be able to navigate or get comfortable. It's very uncomfortable for experts and for uh, people who have been trained in the more linear kind of models of thinking to think this way. So how do you help clients begin to develop a mindset? where they can uh, deal with VUCA as a, as a standard, right? As a matter of course, or as a new normal. Yeah. And you're, I, I love the, the point you're making. It is a very adaptive approach. 
as you guys are talking about the Navy SEAL approach, very adaptive. And our best leaders are very adaptive because there are, there are times when, let's say there are leaders who feel very comfortable around reaching out to colleagues, getting a bunch of people together and collaborating and moving forward. But that doesn't work in times of chaos. That doesn't work right. when you have this time pressure and you, you need to make a decision. And then there are other leaders who feel very comfortable in that, in that space of kind of chaos where, okay, I don't have all the data, but I'm just going to, I'm going to make decision. I'm going to kind of project out in my mind what might occur and I'm going to kind of role play and, and then I'm going to make the decision and decide. Mm-hmm. These may be two different kinds of leaders. Right. Our best leaders are able to do both because what the worst, you know, you have a leader who's then like, you know, command and control and this is what we're going to do. But then all of a sudden that chaos goes away and they're still commanding and controlling. That just doesn't work. Right. On the other hand, if someone's trying to like get everyone together when you just need to make a decision, right. that's not going to work. And so helping leaders identify that, you know, what kind of situation are you in? Do you really need to reach out right now or do you just need to decide based on mission values and what you think is, is the right way of going? Understanding that you don't have all the information that you need and understanding that as you're making a decision now, the goal isn't necessarily to get things right. Your goal is to poke the reality, the situation and see how it responds to your, your solution, and then to right. adapt and continue on versus right. getting a bunch of people together. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's a great distinction, and I agree with that. One of the biggest challenges also for um, complexity and chaos is, is fear, and fear can immobilize, as you know, right? The fear response will lock people into fight or flight or freeze, especially freeze in the, in the corporate sense. And I notice um, in your book, you talk about that you know, as, as one of the kind of the foundations to being a good leader is to overcome or explore the fear and, and the things that are really keeping you stuck. So how do you, like, what is, what's the dialogue like? How do you get people to really overcome their, you know, their fear or what I call yeah. a false expectation appearing real or a false evidence appearing real? Yeah. I mean, f- fear, like, you know, festers in silence. It, it's like, it's a monster that'll just, right. you can sit in a meeting and, oh, what a great decision, then move out. And if you haven't acknowledged the fears and the worries that individuals have, your strategy is is basically destroyed before you leave the room. Right. And you can understand in a meeting where you have individuals together that some people may not feel like they can speak up. There may be powerful individuals in the room. Maybe they're not the, the sort of individual that can just in the moment make that decision. And so we need to, as leaders, un- unroof, like, what are the fears? Deliberately call out, what are your fears about moving forward? Mm-hmm. And it's funny because sometimes as I go in and I'm doing, you know, consulting with organizations, the, one of the things a leader will say is, whatever you do, don't mention like FTEs or don't, whatever you do, don't mention, uh, you know, this sort of thing. And I'm thinking that's exactly what we're going to mention because this right. thing of which you not speak, you know, this Baltimore <laughs> of a situation right. is why things are not working. I love it. Exactly. And so you really, uh, you need to call out the fears and worries because they're, those fears and worries are not just someone who doesn't want change. It's someone who is seeing perhaps parts of the problem that you are not seeing and like real impediments to moving forward. And so if you know the fears and worries, then as you're visioning like how you're going to move forward, you can then take those into consideration. You can try to decrease the chance of those fears happening. Right. And as you're decreasing the chance of those fears happening, that's going to change the options that you might choose to move forward. Right. And the ways that you can be successful. That's interesting. So that's like bringing it into awareness, then you can objectify it and make it something that you can actually solve or, or work with. But if it's hidden from awareness, then it's just going to be an obstacle, right? It's just going to be an obstacle. Right. For me, when I'm working with leaders and, and clients, I find their personal story 
and the mask that they put on and the, their own biases or, or you know, what the, what the psychology profession would call shadow tend to be the biggest limiting issues in their capacity to lead. They feel like they've got to be perfect and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're hiding behind that perfectionism or without understanding why or what's happening, they're being exclusive. They're not, they're not being an inclusive leader because their hidden bias is saying, well, that person is not a producer and so I'm going to ignore them or that person has got that quality and a lot of times they're projecting but bottom line is they're not creating an inclusive environment and so that shuts people down, shuts the team down. Right. That was the whole foundation for a book that I wrote called Staring Down the Wolf. And the idea was you got to stare down your own fear and biases and shadow in order to allow the team to really flourish. Well said. So how do you get into that underlying story with your clients? As a coach, as a leader, how do you help them stare down their fear wolves? Yeah, that's great. And be more authentic or what Brene Brown would call vulnerable, although I don't I don't love that term personally. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think in a lot of this comes from goal setting. And so oftentimes as I'm meeting with a leader, there is an issue that they've been working on that they cannot get through. You know, Atomic Habits is a great book, but sometimes yeah. these atomic habits, like they, they blow up yeah. because there are fears and worries underneath them that are not you know, the preventing things from working out. And so examples of things that leaders bring are an example maybe that you were just alluding to, which is when I'm in a meeting, basically I, I speak up. I tend to take control of the room it tends to silence people. Right. And what I'd like to be able to do is kind of just sit back and let the process work out. That's an example. That's right. Or when I'm in a, a meeting with people I don't know, I'm, I keep quiet. And I'd like to be able to better express my ideas and my sense of what's going on and feel safe to do so. Or right. I'm not good at delegating or all these sorts of things. These are great goals. And I, I tend to find one of those goals that's really important to them that they've had a hard time working on. And then I start to figure out, so what's going on? What are the things that you're doing that work against you uh, letting the room kind of speak and not speaking over them? What are the things that you're doing? And so the person says, well, you know what, I, I interrupt them or I control the agenda or I keep reinforcing what I was thinking or all these things that they're doing, the actual things that they, you know, okay, so now just stop that. But is that going to work? No, because they've tried to stop it and it doesn't work. And so it, it speaks to, as you were talking about facing the wolf, which is, there are fears and worries that they hold about stopping. If I stop controlling the agenda, then maybe they're going to come up with a solution that I don't think is good. Or maybe I'm no longer a leader. Or maybe I won't be the person that they will go to. Or maybe the way a leader is successful is by overriding people. And so you have this tension then of foot on the gas pedal and foot on the brakes, whereas yes, they would like to speak up less and allow the room to talk. But on the other hand, if they do that, the fear of not being seen as a leader, not you know getting their point across, and not being able to move towards successful action, it gets intertwined. Right. And this is an example, as we're again from a framework perspective. This comes from Bob Keegan mm -hmm. out of Harvard, Immunity to Change Framework, which has been very, very I think helpful. Great book to and Lisa Leahy is, is a co-investigator and co-author on. Yeah, that. we use that by the way in our coaching. It's phenomenal. Let's kind of build on this because. The immunity to change and, and overcoming these things, then, like I said, it can shut people down. Let me back up a little bit. Uh, DEI is obviously a, a big issue these days, right? And so boards are now like, in, they're like, okay, DEI is important. It's on our radar. So we're going to do these things. And usually that ends up not really leading anywhere because it's DEI or inclusion and diversity is more than just a set of rules, right? Yeah. 
Right. It's, it really comes down to what we're talking about, the individual leader's ability to include and to overcome their own biases and, and whatnot. And that immunity to change is, is really prevalent. And so people are resistant to that change. But I think that from uh, what I've learned and as a leader, that there's so much value in inclusiveness and diversity. Not only is it being demanded at a board level, but it's being craved at the individual team level, right? And this, we're seeing this big problem with disengagement and quiet quitting and, you know, the you know, people literally just leaving the workforce in droves. And it's because they're not, they don't feel included. And we can even use the term engagement. They don't feel engaged. How do we, as leaders, create more inclusive slash diverse, more engaged environments so that we can draw the best out of our teams? They don't feel included and they don't feel engaged. It's because they're not being included. Right. And so, yes, you hire people with diverse backgrounds and diverse perspectives. But if we're running meetings in a way that we're not listening to those, well, then what's the point there? Right. It's like having the best players and you're not putting them in the game. Right. A lot of this goes back on really the process of how individuals are running meetings. Right. And these complex situations, these challenges that are, are really thorny in, in the VUCA sort of space, these are wonderful spaces that you want to really leverage the different perspectives of the room. You want to like open up the wisdom of the room. And so how do you do that is you need to first, before you decide what tends to happen, you know, we're talking about the leader who speaks up too much, interrupts, they say something, and then there's an individual who's quiet, who doesn't say anything. And then there's an individual who can't delegate, who doesn't want to do anything because they have too much on their plate. Right. And then the meeting adjourns and like, okay, good meeting. No, it wasn't a good meeting because actually nothing happened. Right. And so what we need to do is slow down a little bit and up front uh, and slow down can be, you know, 15 minutes or it can be a retreat. I think it depends on the timing. And really gather a shared uh, reality of shared perspectives of what's going on. And so right. given this challenge, what do you think? And we have to understand that in some situations, and depending on the kind of the culture of the room, people may not feel safe speaking up. And so how do you overcome that? I like this idea of, first of all, you ask individuals to think about it themselves. You know, give two to five minutes for someone to think about this issue by themselves, all their kind of own bullet points. And then pair them into small groups to discuss together and then have those groups report out to the larger group, to the larger meeting, the perspectives. And in that way, the one person who may not have said things in front of the whole group, the small group can hear the perspective and speak out, you know, for the, for the whole group. Right. There's processes that we can use to kind of elevate the safety right. um, before we start to move to the options and way forward. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, psychological safety, obviously, the, is the, you know, the leadership term or, the, you know, the professional terms like. If that doesn't exist, then your teams are not going to be engaged or, you know, felt heard. And so the, I want to also tie this to some of Keegan's work around growth organization. He uses the term deliberately developmental organization. And I think this is also um, going to be a real imperative for leaders in this kind of new normal or as a new normal kind of evolves in the VUCA world that we're in, is that when we look at our teams and we look at our organizations as Massive opportunities for growth, right? So the leader does his growth through coaching and leadership development, but what about the team? And it's not like individual team members just getting some coaching. It's like this team comes together and they have these conversations as part and parcel of their daily work, where every day they come, they're excited because there's an opportunity to grow. They will, they will evolve vertically, not just gain some new horizontal skill. Right. Is that a discussion that you're having at Mayo or, you know, what are you guys doing as an organization to become a growth organization? 
I mean, the challenge is, is that how do you scale all of this? It's a, right. you know, so it's one thing yeah. to give the executives a coach, but are you going to offer ongoing coaching to everyone at every level? And so, yeah. you know, it's a question there. And so right. there are things that just need to be a part of a common language for how we run meetings, how we interact with each other, how we support each other. Building up this coaching skill is a key one. Right. And as you build up the coaching skill, that can scale at all levels. And so you can offer programs where people are learning, they're practicing with each other, and these conversations are occurring in that way. I think that's one way. Right. The other way is just as we're developing leaders, and when I say, when I'm talking about developing leaders, I'm talking about leaders at all levels. Because, right. right. and, we, and we know, like, there's, there's great research that shows, okay, you, we're going to do this really thorny thing. Who would you go to in times of trouble? It's oftentimes the formal leader who people are afraid to go to, right. and oftentimes it's an individual who has no title, right. who is actually the individual that hold, is holding people together, that is actually the informal kind of true leader. Right. And so we want to be developing leaders at all levels. And so how do we develop a common language? And I like things like immunity to change, like helping people understand how to go through their own professional goals and the things that have uh, stopped them up. I love frameworks like the Kinevin framework. I love mm -hmm. the grow sort of model. And I, the more we teach people about that, I think, you know, the better it is. It's difficult to deliberately developmental organization because I think we, we do have to understand that people still, they may not trust the organization as much as the organization wants them to trust. Right. You know, when we have 360s and you're up for the next position, how safe do you feel uh, speaking out your voice? Right. Is it a culture where you actually should be more quiet and, yeah. and what you say may be used against you? Because yeah. there's a lot of dynamics there. I think that can be difficult for the true development, uh, deliberately developmental organization. Yeah, no, I 100% I agree. And you know, it's kind of like what Dalio in his meritocracy said, it, take, it takes about 18 months for a new staff member to kind of align with that or, or to really appreciate the power of that. I think it's similar with the DDO. It could take a long time to transform a culture to be a growth or a growth inclusive culture and it take a long time for new people to really orient to that because it's so new. Yeah. I think that'll change over time personally, but it's a simple concept, but it's not easy to implement. Let's just put it that way. That's awesome. We got to wrap up here pretty soon, but um, I do want to ping on one other thing. And I think it's so important. We talk about the importance of leading with story. What, what do you mean by that? And how do we do that? I think, and particularly for male clinic, the reason I went to Mayo Clinic is because of the mission and values. I saw an organization that was really dedicated on serving the needs of patients. That is the primary value. And so as we're going through difficult times, and COVID is a difficult time, right now as we're talking about AI and machine learning and all the changes that we're seeing within the market, all the new medications and the technologies, there's a, there are a lot of things that are changing. It's really falling back on the stories of what we have done in the past how we have overcome, right. how we have lived our mission and values and, and embodied them mm -hmm. that really help us to like kind of level set then how we move forward. Right. The difficult thing is, is though that some of the values, you know, you see innovation or you see teamwork or you see, see integrity. And we can think of, you know, Enron, integrity was uh, one of their values. <laughs> and you can right. see how organizations go, well, this is not really so convenient right now to have this value that starts to really kind of eat the organizations from the inside. And so right. these stories really display what the values are in action and then help the leaders embody them. And these are things to be doing during times where things are easy, but especially um, when it's inconvenient, because that's where really the organizations move forward from. I love that. I think those stories become the guardrails, you know, when things get really chaotic. 
right? Because it's, it's the story of, you know, how the, you know, frontline customer service is, is handling the customer, right? And you could call those rules or processes, but it really is about the why behind it that's important, right? You have to understand that. And that's what you mean by the story. Totally. Yeah. I mean, telling the, the story of a patient who's come through the system and, right. and has been helped. Right. The individual in the community, how what we've been doing has offered opportunities and, and raised the health of the community. And I think each of our organizations have these sorts of stories. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. A great place to kind of put a pin in this. So thanks so much for your time, Richard. It's been amazing. You're the Leader is your book. You're the Leader Now What uh, came out as we record this, you said about a week ago. So congratulations. It's Putting a book out is, you know, a little bit of a challenge. It takes a little time. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a little bit of time, a little bit of pain involved. So good job. Do you have a particular website you like people to go to learn more about it? Or, you know, where, where can folks kind of reach out or connect with you? And I know you do speaking and, and other things. So, yeah. And so my name, richardwinters.com, is, is kind of the, the place I think where they can go and they can look for where to purchase the book and how to contact me. Awesome. Well, Richard, thanks so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it brilliant work. And um, I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot from that. And thanks for what you're doing at Mayo. Mayo has been a real beacon of light in that whole uh, medical world. And so I appreciate the work that the Mayo Clinic is doing as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Hoo-yah. What a fascinating conversation with Richard about his book, You're the Leader, Now What? We talked about all sorts of interesting things. I love the growth model. In fact, in my new book, Uncommon, I talk about the growth model. What are your goals, reality, options, way forward? What are your tasks and what help do you need? It's a great model to use to help solve any problem or in any coaching relationship. We talk about a ton of great stuff, so really enjoyed that. Thank you very much, Richard. Show notes and transcripts are up at markdevine.com. Video is up on our YouTube channel, so check that out if you like the video version. Uh, you can reach out to me or learn more about our work at Mark Devine on Twitter and at RealMarkDevine on Instagram and Facebook or from my LinkedIn account. If you're not on my newsletter, please consider subscribing. Go to markdivine.com to subscribe every Tuesday. Divine Inspiration will hit your inbox where I provide a synopsis of the week's show, as well as my blog, as well as other shows where I'm a guest. And so it's more interviews of me, as well as other cool things that come across my death and practices as well. So I think you'll really enjoy that. Go to markdivine.com to subscribe. Thanks so much to my amazing team. Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell who help produce this podcast and bring incredible guests like Richard to you every week. Reviews and ratings are very helpful. So if you haven't reviewed or rated, consider doing so. It's how other people find us and it brings us credibility and allows us to continue doing what we're doing. Thanks so much for doing the work, supporting this podcast, for being the change you want to see in the world. Together, we can do this at scale and uh, navigate the VUCA world that is upon us. And it's going to get messier before it gets better, but we can get through this and uh, thrive. Easy day. Until next time, this is Mark Devine. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.